three weeks ago, Pastor Peter said that uh, the Church Without Walls sermon series is going to speed up. And uh, what he didn't say was like the apostles in Acts chapter 1, he cast lots and the lot has apparently fallen on Michael to uh, bring us up to speed this morning. He preached six verses last week and this morning I'm going to preach 67 verses. Yeah, whatever. That's what seniority gets you around here. Um, So so we're we're in Acts 6 again. And as we heard last week, for those of you who were here, um, in Acts chapter 6, the church is, is moving its ministry to include both the proclamation of the message of Jesus and structured, sort of structured ways to respond to, to needs when they come up in, in the community. In the first part of Acts 6, leaders are selected in order to uh, provide service and uh, administrative leadership, organizational leadership, so that uh, the people of God have their needs met, no matter their, their culture, no matter their uh, economic situation. And, and one of the leaders who is selected in the early part of chapter 6 becomes the focus for the next um, set of verses uh, that we will deal with today. His name is Stephen. The Bible says that Stephen is a man full of grace and faith, full of power and the Holy Spirit. And Stephen becomes, in the passage that we will see, uh, a a reflection of the death of Jesus Christ. The the experience that he goes through is, is what Jesus has prophesied to his disciples in the Gospels. He says to his disciples in the Gospels, and we see playing out in Stephen's life, for those who follow Jesus... For the apostles who will take up their crosses after the Savior, that their, uh, therein is a future that was just like that of Jesus. Stephen shows us that following Jesus means giving everything to Jesus and giving everything to Jesus in order to be his witness means everything. So this morning, uh, we're going to encounter a long passage, and I, I want to ask you uh, for, for your patience as you hear this passage. It, it, it would take me uh, an hour to read through it, so this morning, rather than read it because I, I can talk kind of slow, we're going to have it read in a kind of uh, dramatic a reading. So here, Acts chapter 6 and Acts chapter 7, and listen for the word of God. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch a convert to Judaism. They presented them to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. 
who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Then the high priest asked Stephen, Are these charges true? To this he replied, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance here, not even enough ground to set his foot on. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no child. God spoke to him in this way. For 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves. God said. And afterward, they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision, and Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh king of Egypt. So Pharaoh made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our people could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our ancestors on their first visit. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob and his whole family, seventy-five in all. Then Jacob went down to Egypt, where he and our ancestors died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abraham had brought from the sons of Hamer at Shechem for a certain sum of money. As the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt had greatly increased. Then... A new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our ancestors by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. At that time, Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for in his parents' home. And when he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. After forty years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. As he went over to get a closer look, he heard the Lord say, 
I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. This is the same Moses they had rejected with the words, Who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and performed wonders and signs in Egypt, at the Red Sea, and for forty years in the wilderness. This is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will send you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors, and he received living words to pass on to us. But our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, Make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and reveled in what their own hands had made. But God turned away from them and gave them over to the worship of the sun, moon, and stars. This agrees with what is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings forty years in the wilderness house of Israel? You have taken up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your god Rephan, the idols you made to worship. Therefore I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant law with them in the wilderness. It had been made as God directed Moses, according to the pattern he had seen. Having received the tabernacle, our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels but have not obeyed it. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them! When he had said this, this is the word of God. I'm going to ask you what you've heard in um, the, the largest part of that reading in a little bit. But what I'd like to do this morning is, is, is pull out four scenes from uh, this long passage and, and talk about them uh, that way. And the, f- the first scene that we see in, the, in the, early, the latter part of chapter 6, when Stephen 
uh, is brought before this council. I'll call the charge. Um, the Sanhedrin council brings false witnesses and these, these witnesses accuse Stephen of blasphemy and they say that Stephen is representing Jesus who is going to destroy the temple and who is going to do away with the customs of Moses. The customs of Moses are the law. And so in the charge is this, this, this language about, um, uh, certainly about the law, about the prophets, about the land which Stephen begins to talk about and also about the temple. The Sanhedrin council brings these elements up and each of these, the law, the prophets, the land and the temple are, are integral or, or critical to the history and the life of Israel. Understand that, that the law and the temple had, had very esteemed prominent places in the life of the people of God. The Jews had been taught to take all of their direction, all of their cues from the Torah. The Torah is the instruction or the law of God. So, so th- there was no other vehicle like the law of God to, to train Israel to become the people of God. All their lives, they had been told how vital the law was for instruction. They looked to Moses and placed him in, in probably the, the preeminent place uh, for a figure to have in terms of their faith development. And each of these pieces was critical to the faith of the people of Israel. And Israel was God's people. God brought them out of Egyptian bondage. And Moses says in Exodus that God brought them out of bondage in order so that they could worship God, in order so that Israel would know God. When they received the law at Mount Sinai, they received the law so that they could better worship and know God. One of the Old Testament scholars that I Read when I'm thinking about the Old Testament is Walter Brueggemann. And Walter Brueggemann says that knowing God is a two-fold, has a two-fold meaning. Knowing God on the one hand is about having uh, convincing data or evidence about God. And on the other hand, knowing God is in Exodus and for the people of Israel about being convinced of God's sovereignty. And if the law was in place, if, 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 if Israel was given the law of God to know God, they were given the law so that they would know God and be convinced of God's sovereignty. Now, Israel was given, was promised rather, the wealth and prosperity of God when God spoke to Abraham. They were given the law through Moses and, 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 and the God of Israel's history designated these places, the law, the promises, the covenant, God designated these as markers or places for Israel to encounter the Holy One. The law was not just where they received instruction, but it was a marker for Israel for how they would encounter God, for how they would come to know God and be God's own people. In the choices of Abraham and Joseph, when God protected them and protected the promise that God gave, in the law that God delivered through Moses, and eventually in the temple where the people came to worship, to encounter God, and to to receive atonement for their sins. These were dwelling places. They were markers for God, uh, for, for Israel rather, to see and encounter God. If I were to ask you this morning, where are those places in your life where you encounter God? If I were to ask you this morning uh, to look over your history and find the dwelling places that you go to, that you look to, to encounter God, I wonder where they would be. In Israel's life, the law was that dwelling place. The temple became that dwelling place. And so as we come to Acts, the Sanhedrin 
council here is responding uh, to Stephen, charging him with blasphemy, charging him with speaking against the most preeminent holy places in Israel's life. Stephen has spoken against the places that God has set up in Israel's history for the people to encounter him. Stephen announces when he begins to engage this question a deep respect for Israel's history. He does not diminish the value uh, of Israel's history. He goes through talking about Abraham, talking about Joseph, uh, talking about Moses, the law, and the temple, and he announces a deep and abiding respect. He, he, he affirms the history of Israel, but he goes a step further than affirming the history. He begins to correct their history. He begins to, to, to respond to the religious leaders' understanding of the law and the elders here, the established leaders here, respond out of anger and irritation and their response falls like a heavy blade in this passage. They, they love the law. They're responsible for maintaining the temple. That's their job. And Stephen says to them, you're getting it all wrong. Think about this morning. If, if you had oriented your life around, and we do this, we orient our lives around God's things that we worship. And if someone was to come to you and say, the God that you've oriented your life around is wrong, how would you respond? Now, we come from the charge to the second scene, which is the sermon. Stephen preaches what is the longest passage recorded in Scripture. And it's a nice contrast to how much time I have to preach today. I don't have as much time as he takes. But I'll give you an overview of his sermon and then talk a little bit about uh, a few of the details. In, in this sermon, and actually, actually why, don't, why don't I ask you, what, what did you hear in this message? What did you read? Some of you had your Bibles open while you were hearing this. What did you hear in this sermon? And this is the part where you actually answer out loud, just in case. What did you hear? You don't have to preach the whole sermon. I'll have to cut you off if you try it. Um, but what did you hear? History. History? Okay. Say what? The story of Moses. Okay. All those verses and that's it? Come on. Come on. Open your Bibles. Cheat. What did you hear? Comparison, say more. What do you mean? Okay. Yeah. He said the comparison between Israel's previous generation and the prophets uh, or the people that uh, uh, was listening to Stephen and how they encountered Jesus, how they um, responded to Jesus, others. Joseph's story, okay. What else did you hear? That's like a movie title. Uh, an inconvenient conviction. Thank you, Almondola. You want to preach? I'm just asking. All right. That's good. That's, we would say in the black church, that'll preach. Uh, so we can say that in the multi-ethnic church too. That'll preach. What else did you hear? What happens when you follow the law without following God? One more person. It's 
So there's a thread of God's plan and God's purpose throughout the passage. Actually, one writer says that that Stephen's message shows God's providential plan for salvation. And, and And a part of what happens in this message is Stephen saying to these leaders that the way you've boxed God in is as if that plan and that purpose of God stops with the temple. But the temple can't hold God. Is there a dwelling place that you can create that can hold God? Stephen, in this this sermon, basically addresses the charge of blasphemy, and he goes through the history, like you said, of Israel, and he deconstructs their false witnesses' testimony. He talks about the fact that God cannot be restricted to a certain place. God cannot be said to work in a certain place. And the truth about the history of Israel is that that has not even been true in their lives. So he goes and he says, you talk about the temple. You're asking me whether, I would, uh, whether Jesus would destroy the temple. Well, let me take you back to Abraham. When there was no temple. Let's talk about Joseph when there was no law. Let's talk about Moses who eventually came and brought the law. But he brought these leaders back to the history. And, and, and he shows again a deep respect for their history. But he starts to, he starts to correct their view of the law and the temple. So, so the law here and, and the temple are both instruments or tools or devices that God uses in Israel's life to bring them into relationship with him. They, they, they are the, the ways that God fashions Israel as the people of God. Like no other instrument, the Torah was to provide the instruction for Israel. Like no other place, the temple was the place to encounter God. It was the place to see God. It was the place to envision God. It was also the place to sacrifice offerings and to receive atonement for sins. And so Stephen is treading on sacred ground when he's talking about God's way of instructing Israel or when he talks about the temple, which is the place where their, their atonement was received. So he starts talking about these things and, and, and Tom Wright, N.T. Wright, the New Testament scholar, talks about this passage and he says what got Stephen in trouble is what he basically does is he, he, he uses Jesus to upstage the temple and the law. Stephen's message is fundamentally what God accomplishes in Jesus is more than what the law and the temple could provide. After all, Stephen says, priests still have to continue to provide sacrifices and Israel is no less holy, no more holy. Israel is still sinning with the temple, with the law. And if, if, if the goal of the law is to bring us into relationship with God, if the goal of the temple is to bring us to the place to encounter God, why hasn't it worked? Why haven't we encountered God? Why haven't we been changed and formed and made into the holy people of God? It doesn't work for us either. We have our law and our temple. Those dwelling places that we go to, the markers in our lives that say to us, you're doing enough. You've earned salvation. You've lived good enough. You've checked off all of the lists on your in order to be saved to-do list. We act like these Jewish leaders who revere the law, who, who respect and honor the temple so much that they begin to restrict 
their view of God to their experience in the past. And they miss Jesus when he comes. Stephen is trying to remind these folks in his sermon, before there was a temple, there was a tabernacle. Before a tabernacle, there was a tent. Before a tent, Jacob set up stones. So there wasn't always this temple. There wasn't always this law. And, and, and he is trying to get them to, 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 to embrace something beyond the law. He honors the law. He just does not give the law complete honor. He says that Israel's relationship to the law and to the temple is noble, but it is secondary to a more beautiful relationship. He says that both of these tools, both of these instruments have power, but their power dim in comparison to the God behind them. In other words, the law and the temple are vehicles. They're not destinations. They're what take you to God, but they are not to be the stopping place of our religious life or our life in God's presence. And the ironic thing about uh, this is the people who are listening to Stephen's sermon are the folks who should get it. This, this Sanhedrin council is uh, full of Jews from the diaspora. They, they are Jews from all over the place. They are not just from Jerusalem. They're not from the town where the temple is. And so Stephen is here saying, you're talking to me about the importance and the place of the temple to come and get atonement for our sins, and you live miles and miles away and don't even come to the temple. How can you encounter God? Stephen accused them of resisting the Holy Spirit. Look at this passage in Acts chapter 6, verse verse 46, verse 46 and following, where Stephen is ending uh, the sermon. He says, David found favor with God and asked for the privilege of building a permanent temple for, for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who actually built it. However, the Most High doesn't live in temples made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Could you build me a temple as good as that? Asked the Lord, could you build me such a resting place? Didn't my hands make both heaven and earth? You stubborn people, this is Stephen. You are heathen at the heart and death. To the truth. Must you forever resist the Holy Spirit? Let's park just a minute. And and church, can I say that these words should be a prayer that we pray when we gather together as God's people? Can I tell you that when you pray in your own time and on your own, that that, that part of your prayer should be uh, that, that God never allow us to be deaf to the truth. Part of our prayer when we come to the preaching opportunity, part of our prayer when we study the scripture, part of our prayer when we encounter each other in conversation, when we try to pursue life change, should be God, please don't allow me to be so hard hearted. So deaf to the truth that I resist your Holy Spirit. That's a part of what Pastor Peter was just saying a few moments ago. Last week, we'll get it wrong. We'll misunderstand. We'll have to listen a long time before we discern the will of God. But if we are not resistant to the Holy Spirit, we will follow. We will get there. If we are deaf to the truth, God will lead this church. God will lead you. I think we should pray this prayer that God would not allow us to resist the Holy Spirit, to be heathen at the heart. Not, not how you look, because you look, you look beautiful. You look a lot more beautiful than you really are, because you're really ugly in the heart. Oh, come on, you know. Our hearts, the Bible says, are wicked. 
And I think part of our prayer, Jeremiah talking about who can know that wicked heart, part of our prayer is that God the Holy Spirit should hold our hearts and affirm not just our wickedness, but how God's grace is available to save us in our hard hearts from that wickedness. Stephen says, that's what your ancestors did. And so do you. Name one prophet your ancestors didn't persecute. They even killed the ones who predicted the coming of the righteous one, the Messiah whom you betrayed and murdered. He says, you deliberately disobeyed God's law even though you received it from the hands of angels. This is too much for them. And Stephen gets stoned. That's the third scene. We see this horrific murder. That's what we see. Uh, Stephen, after a deliberation that is impulsive and emotional, watches the Sanhedrin being cut in their hearts with rage. In their hearts are jealousy. And in Stephen's heart is faith. Luke says, grace and power and the Holy Spirit. And I think we see here repeated what we already saw in that sad scene that we come back to in the church calendar uh, at Good Friday. We come back to it as often as we can at New Community. We see a reminder of Jesus' death. Stephen died at the hands of people who, who claimed to be warmed by the knowledge of God when their hearts were really cold enough to kill. Now imagine, imagine our world, imagine our culture, imagine the people that you listen to, imagine the media, imagine the stories about the church today. And if, and if you, and I'm not going to ask you your answer, but if you had to place God's church on a continuum and one end of the continuum was the example of Stephen where he preaches a message that is true, and he gets killed for it, and he ends up asking God to forgive his murderers, that's one end. And you see a church that throws stones at people because they don't get it right, because they don't check off the right list, because they don't go to the right place, do the right things, say the right things, sing the right songs. Where would God's church be? Stephen is, Stephen is, is, is dying in a way That people in our world die. He's dying because people who are more powerful than him, apparently, find his testimony less important than their interpretations of Scripture. They picked up stones on the way out of the city and stoned Stephen. He tells his story and uh, he recasts them as, as, as the villains. And when I was thinking about this passage, uh, I knew I was preaching several weeks ago and uh, I told the nine o'clock church um, that I was thinking of this scripture as I, as I came back from, sorry, came back from an event. I went to uh, Manly High School a couple of weeks ago and I was in uh, Mr. Ward's classroom. Um, they, they have Umoja uh, puts on an event every year where they invite what they call community partners, which means adults, uh, to come to the high school and to talk with the students there. So I was there and I was actually in uh, Butter's class and uh, I'm sorry, Mr. Ward's class and another another uh, community partner was there and we were going through certain exercises and kind of a curriculum. And one of the questions that he asked these kids, he asked him, he said, um, what do you see good about your neighborhood? And we were going through this curriculum and this you know, sort of how he introed the, the exercise that we were doing. And, and we listened to them uh, tell us over and over absolutely nothing. They said there's nothing good 
about our community. And they told us, they said, this is, um, for those of you that don't know, Manley's on the west side, and, uh, uh, and, I, and I actually don't think that, that my little brother's answers to this question would be different from most of uh, the high schools in our city. Uh, they said, uh, when we come to school, we walk past gangbangers. And when we go home, we walk past drug dealers. When we go home, we stay in the house because it, you know, it can get pretty violent on our block. Everybody's trying to pass rocks. Everybody's trying to sell drugs. So there's nothing good about our community. And so here we are, here we are, the adults in the room trying to make some sense and trying to sort of move conversation along in, in the church, what I would call a redemptive way, right? Trying to be positive. Here you got adults, you know, whole community partner day. You know, it's like, how, you know, we got to get this beyond this real depressed kind of conversation. And every answer we tried to give them, uh, and we didn't give them a lot of answers. We were supposed to do more listening than speaking. Everything we said, they talked down. We talked about the police. They said the police are corrupt. The police take the drugs. The police take the drug money. We talked about the autumn. They said, the who, what do they do? We talked about the mayor. They said, whatever. And here were these children. These are my little brothers, as I say. These, these, are, these, are, these are men who are, who, are, who are the future of this city. And aside from the fact that I'm glad that Mr. Ward is in their life on a regular basis and I acknowledge that I only saw a piece of a conversation that is inside a lot of conversations that he is having as a teacher. And some of you relate to this. Some of you say, well, if you pull out one slice, you miss the whole kind of cake. And I'm not trying to do that as much as I'm trying to say in that conversation, those kids, those kids were basically saying we get stones thrown at us every day. And their challenge to us, and they put it very frankly, was what are you going to do about it? You're asking us what we're going to do about it. What are you, you're the adults. What are you going to do about it? And, and I think of those kids when I think of Stephen being stoned. I think of them. I think of some of the children in your schools. We've got teachers in our church, other teachers in our church. I think of some of the people you encounter who come to a passage like this if they were to come to it and say, yeah, I can relate to Stephen. In the book of Acts, rather than hearing that their leadership and their service contributes to the religious life and faith of Israel, Stephen says to these people that they're responsible for Israel's slavery, that they're responsible for Israel's disloyalty to the covenant that God gave, that they are responsible for the death of Jesus and the death of the prophets before him, that they are responsible for doing the opposite of what they were employed as priests to do. You are the priest and your responsibility is to represent the needs of people to God and God's covenant and promise to the people. And here you are restricting the God whom you're going to. How do you see God accurately? Stephen is pressing. When you say God can only be encountered in the law and the temple. And he knows what he's saying. He knows that he's giving a gift in this early period of Christian history. And that gift is an unrelenting reminder that who and what has been worshipped has been wrong. Now I ask you, if worship is orienting life around a thing, a person, an object, what do you worship? If worship is how you Come to form an understanding of yourself. Where do you worship? Do you do it at work? Do you do it at work where uh, you convince yourself, and you don't do it explicitly because that just wouldn't be Christian, um, that just wouldn't be right, but do, do do you convince yourself that your value 
is wrapped up in the assessment or the evaluation that your supervisor will give you every quarter or annually. And if you don't make the excellent rating that you actually are not a good person. Do you go to work hours after hours trying to create for yourself a rendering that only God can give you? Do you, do you worship, do you find the orientation of your life in what you do? Maybe it's in the relationships that you have. Which is why you spend more time hanging out with your friends, students, than you do studying. Oh, I can do the study later. This is really more important, my friend. So if, if I'm in the right network, if I date the right person, then I'll really be beautiful because he'll tell me that I'm beautiful or she'll convince me that I am valuable. Stephen, Stephen, is, Stephen is saying in this, in this, his own sermonic charge, that what the Sanhedrin council has worshipped, how they have understood God, is wrong. And that's why, they, that's why they get mad. That's why they kill him. That's why they stone him. And I, I, think, I, think they, I think the way this breaks down for us today, outside of talking about where we worship, is how we begin to see this final scene, the gospel. And I think the gospel is shown in at least two ways in, in, in this passage. One has to do with what Stephen is doing. Stephen, in, in, in this passage, when they pick up stones, is praying for them. And he's asking God to forgive his murderers. I hear Stephen, I hear Stephen saying uh, uh, in his sermon and as he takes stones, I hear him saying to these, these, these leaders, I'm so convinced of the truth of the gospel. I'm so convinced of the God who has, who, has, who has taken my heart and given me joy. I am so convinced that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is the sent one for you, that I will do what Jesus did, that I will embody afflictions the way Jesus embodied afflictions. <clears throat> I am so convinced, I hear Stephen saying, that Jesus took your stones to Calvary, that I will take your stones and I will ask God to forgive you. I think that's the gospel. I think, I think Stephen is showing us how to live the gospel in the face of our enemies. I think that Stephen is showing us when people mistreat us and when we suffer persecution, praying for people, that God would do the best thing that God could ever do for them, and that is forgive, is the gospel. I was telling my wife Dawn the other week that it's becoming harder for me to pray. And I was talking specifically about something that has happened uh, in our neighborhood, sort of in the city. The University of Chicago uh, has a pretty big hospital and a pretty big medical center. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, they announced that they would be cutting their budget, I think 7 to 10%, uh, to the tune of $100 million. And um, a part of them cutting their budget because of this recession, if it's not something else, um, this big, bad economic problem. A part of them doing that is um, laying people off, firing people. Um, and, and the reason why it's becoming harder for me to pray is because my mother-in-law works there. Uh, members of this church work there. And so when I think about praying... And, 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 and what it looks like and sounds like to pray for people who could be your enemy, one of the things I think of is I think of, well, how do I pray and ask God to, to come around uh, the people that I love that are working in a place that I know is losing jobs? Do I pray, God, you know Vivian, you know Gerald, you know their situation, you know Anna and Dan, 
you know, my mother, do I pray that way? Do I stop there? Do I pray for those other folks who I don't know? Do I say, well, God, you know, whatever you do with their positions. But preserve, preserve the people that I know, the people that I love. I think about, I think about Stephen's prayer in my own personal angst right now and how I'm praying for, for some of you. Because I can't just pray for you. I have to pray for people who I don't, right? So, so how do I do that? How do you pray for people on your job who you know is behind your back trying to protect themselves and exposing you? Some of you work in places where it's all about the bottom line. And if you don't contribute to the bottom line in the best way, then, you know, I mean, the company needs to make money. So if your focus and your attention is just on the bottom line, there are folks you work with who will do whatever they need to do to make more of the bottom line than you do. Do you pray for them? Do you ask God to forgive them when they stab you in the back? I'm almost done, but I want to know, what are you hearing? What are you hearing? What are you hearing? Talk to me. You're hearing that it's not your battle. Yeah. What's your name? Lindsay? Lindsay, Lindsay is, is hearing God in this passage, hearing God speaking to her that it's not her battle. And, 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 and I, think, I think that Stephen is a partner in that statement in this way. St- Stephen, is, Stephen is showing us that if the stones hit him... Now, I look at this passage. I look at this passage. And... I, and I look at this passage and I say, there's a certain way I expect God to to handle this. They're going to start throwing stones and God, in some fantastic way, I mean, his face is already radiating, so it it can't be hard for God to sort of wrap a bubble around Stephen and sort of shield him from the stones and they bounce off of him and they hit the Sanhedrin and some just, that's what I expect. (laughs) And it doesn't happen. Stephen gets hit. Lindsay gets laid off. It doesn't happen the way I think it should happen. There, there's a story about this passage. Preacher preaches this passage, and he, I'm running out of time. I'm out of time. Preacher preaches this passage, and he says, he says uh, on the street preaching this passage that God, uh, using Stephen and a heckler, a person in his audience listening, says, why doesn't God do something for Stephen? And the preacher says, God does something for Stephen. God does give something to Stephen. God gives Stephen the grace to ask for the forgiveness of his enemy's sin. In Lindsay's life, that looks like peace after Leo. The job is gone. Can I get something else? Can I be full of something else? Can I have a power, a faith, a grace? Can the Holy Spirit be resident in me so that when stones come, I can pray for the forgiveness of the ones who are throwing the stones? We see the gospel in Stephen's behavior. Lastly, we see the gospel in what Jesus does. Vision Stephen is there and Jesus is, 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 is cracking open the skies. 
There's a passage in Hebrews 4 and 14 and 15 that we won't go to that talks about Jesus being our high priest who, who, who can be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, who was tempted in every way the way we were tempted. He is our high priest. Remember that the priest's job was to go to God and get God's word for the people, to come back to the people and to take the people, take the law to the people and ask God to forgive the people from their sins. The priest was to go before the people, hear their need for forgiveness, redemption and atonement and to take those prayers to God and to return to the people, God's word to the people. Here in this passage is our high priest. And Jesus, Jesus comes uh, uh, before Stephen. And I think he does two things. I think he welcomes Stephen. I think, I think he invites Stephen to keep doing what he's doing. I think if, if we could think of God in images that Jesus and God in this passage is a big smile and wide open arms. And I see Jesus smiling. I see Jesus looking at Stephen and saying what he's saying to some of you because you have peace in the midst of hard, challenging circumstances. And I hear Jesus saying, I am pleased with you. Some of you need to hear, after all of the witnessing that you do, the proclamation that you do, that you are pleasing Jesus. There's always more to be done. There are always more enemies to hear the message. There are always more non-believers who need to be convinced of the truth of the gospel. But for you who are living in this way, can you sit this morning with the truth that Jesus is cracked, opening the skies, has opened the skies, and is smiling and looking at you, welcoming you, being pleased by your witness. That's one thing that Jesus is doing. He's, he's there. He's there. Stephen, he's looking at Stephen. But the priest's role is not just to encounter the people. The priest's role is to encounter God. The priest's role is to, to take the people's needs before God and to bring atonement to the people. And I see our high priest I see our advocate. I see Jesus in this passage, not just leaning over some cloud-filled banister trying to reach for Stephen and trying to affirm him and the ministry that he is, is, is providing in this passage. I see Jesus moving back to the Father and convincing and telling and reminding God... That Stephen's value, that your value, that Stephen's salvation, that your salvation is not in what you did or didn't do last night or this morning or last week. I hear Jesus. My image of Jesus, worship team, come on back, is an image of Jesus going to the Father and saying, Father, Stephen is acceptable not because of the bad that he did, but because of the good that I did. I see Jesus and I hear Jesus as our high priest saying, yes, you are wicked. Yes, you are sinful. Yes, you may be like the Sanhedrin because your gods, your ineffective gods, aren't releasing their holds in your lives. You're, you're holding on. You are wicked. But I hear Jesus saying more than that. I hear him saying, you are loved. And he vindicates Stephen because he is confirming the truth of Stephen's message to this Sanhedrin. This message that says, this message that says, if your religion is joyless, it's not the religion of Jesus. It's not the faith of Jesus. If your faith has you tied up and trying to think about the next hoop you have to go through in order to be acceptable before God, then your faith is not a faith in Jesus. If your faith, friend, is causing you to be punished because you think you missed the mark of the law, you broke the law, you missed the message, you didn't cross uh, the T or dot the I, can I tell you that your faith is not a faith in Jesus? Because faith in Jesus says, everybody who doesn't dot the I, everybody who doesn't cross the T, come on, everybody, all of you, the wicked, the sinful, the stone thrower, you killed somebody, you talked about somebody, you slept with somebody who wasn't your spouse, you did it all. You come too. Because the cracked sky 
And the message of the high priest is one for you. Bow your heads. Lord Jesus, some of us today see you as a punisher. And we might not know enough to acknowledge it. But would you help us to see you differently? Would you give us an image of you today as our priest? As the one who comes with the truth of God's message of reconciliation and grace and love and help us to live out of that view of you. May we no longer live by the laws and the temples of our lives, but may we live by your gospel, by your truth. In your name we pray. Amen. New community this week. Live with God as your vision, as God before you, as God behind you, to your left and to your right. May God be your ruler, because God is ruler of all. Go forth in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Have a great week, everybody. Next week is Daylight Savings Time. And for our parents and children's ministry workers, we'll see you this afternoon. Bye-bye.